Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, the letter to the church this morning, that's pretty short, uh, but it's very deep, very, very deep. So if you remember, we have four levels of application to each of the seven letters. There's a local application to a real church that was really going through things in that time period. There's application to all churches which is why God says in every one of them, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural. There is a personal application, he that hath an ear. So that's each of us in this room, we've got an ear. And then there's a prophetic profile to all churches that lays out church history in advance. Actually, it's how Jesus wrote it. And each of the letters has seven elements as well. The title of Jesus, a commendation, an exhortation, a correction. A promise to the overcomer, a, the name of the church, and then he that happened here, that closing phrase. And if you remember, the seven letters followed this old Roman mail route through ancient Turkey. And the order of which they were written goes Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And it followed that route kind of clockwise around what we would call modern day Turkey. And Smyrna, the second letter, is... In the Greek word, it's uh, smyrnios, smyrnios, and it, it comes from the root word of myrrh, and M-U-R, but in the Bible, a lot of times it's M-Y-R-R-H, it's, a, it's an ancient spice, and so myrrh is used throughout the entire Bible, and it's a bitter, kind of gummy substance that they would use to make in a very expensive perfume. And it's produced by a specific tree in the Middle East in the uh, Arabia region. And in Arabic, it literally means bitter. So it was a bitter oil. And in Psalms 45, 8, it's used to make a very expensive perfume. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. In Exodus 30, verse 23, it's used as a priestly anointing oil. So take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, and it goes on. And that's how they would anoint the priest, is with, is with myrrh, this expensive spice. In Esther chapter 2, verse 12, myrrh is used to purify the bride. Okay, so if you remember in Esther, the king was looking for a new bride and, all, and they went and gathered potential brides, and they purified all of them with myrrh. Okay, that's in Esther chapter 2, verse 12. You can see, uh, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished to it six months with oil of myrrh. Myrrh should be appropriated to the bride in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 5. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh. And so you see this concept of myrrh over and over through the Bible, purifying the bride. Okay? This is it's interesting because that's how we, as Jesus' bride, should be purified. 
because myrrh does not release its aroma until it's crushed. So it's this bitter substance that it was totally useless until it was crushed, and then it would release this aroma that was used in perfumes and purification and all kinds of things. And that's exactly what we get to do with Jesus. Okay, It foretells of Jesus being crushed and releasing the Holy Spirit, releasing that anointing for which we are to be purified as his bride. And so myrrh is very significant all through the Bible. And it wasn't until after Jesus' sacrifice where he was crushed that we had the ability to appropriate that to ourselves. And so at his birth, Jesus is presented three things. Everybody remembers this. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the gold was for his kingship, the frankincense for his priesthood, and myrrh prophesying of his soon-to-be death. Okay, and again, it only releases its aroma when it's crushed. In the millennium, in Isaiah 60, verse 6, the nations bring gifts to him once again, but this time they only bring gold and frankincense, no myrrh, because his death is behind him. So it was to foretell his death at his birth. In the millennium, it's no longer needed because it's not, he's not dying again. His death was once and for all and for everyone. So it's over. It's satisfied. To telestai, remember on the cross, Jesus says to telestai, it is finished. And it's used to embalm Jesus in John 19, 39. But interesting, Jesus refuses it on the cross in Mark 15. Remember, they tried to give him wine mingled with myrrh, and he received it not. But it was used to embalm him a little bit later. You see that in John 19. So all through the Bible, myrrh is representing the eternal atoning sacrifice of our king. His once and for all crushing and his once for all appropriation to each of us that accepts him and the free gift that we get to enjoy as his bride. Okay, so death, you know, Smyrna, you think of it, myrrh is death, and it's all through this letter, the letter to Smyrna. The name of the church is death. The title of Jesus in the letter represents death. Even the promise to be overcomer represents death. And so you have this theme all through the Bible of death, 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 death. It just radiates out of this church, this letter to Smyrna. And so it opens up with the phrase, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. So even the title of Jesus has to do with death, but yet the resurrection out of it. So much like myrrh being crushed and then that aroma, that resurrection that came out of it. And interesting, when you go through the Bible, you have this whole concept of the first and the last seven times in the Bible. This, this title of Jesus is used for Isaiah 41.4, the first and the last. Isaiah 44.6, I am the first and I am the last. Isaiah 48, 12, I am the first, I also am the last. You've got Revelation 1, 11, we looked at that two weeks ago. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, the first and the last. Literally the bracketing the Greek alphabet, the first and the last. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, I am the first and last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive. And that's what we have here in Revelation 2, 8. The first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And so twice of all these titles, he, he goes a step further that I was dead and am alive. 
not just the first and the last, but dead and then alive. Okay, and then the closing one is Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And you get almost to the very end of the Bible where Jesus is proclaiming that one last time. So the commendations for Smyrna start in verse 9. These are the things they were doing very well. And Jesus has a lot of them. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So Jesus knows the tribulation this church is going through. Remember, he said the same thing to Ephesus last week. I know thy works. Okay, he knew what Ephesus was about, and he had a lot of good things to say, but he had some correction for them as well. And so I know thy works. And here we're going to see there is no correction for the church at Smyrna. Jesus has nothing bad to say about this church, enduring immense persecution. Okay, I know thy works in tribulation. This Greek word is philipsis. Okay, and it does not mean the great tribulation. It means trials. It means a pressing, pressing together, pressure, affliction, or distress. Okay, so that he knows, Jesus knows the stress this church is under. How much affliction they're being continually put under during this time. Okay, it's not the great tribulation spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 24. Okay, the great tribulation starts... According to Jesus, you know, we mistakenly call that entire seven-year tribulational period as the Great Tribulation. But according to Jesus, it's really the last three and a half years that is the Great Tribulation. And don't get me wrong, all seven of those years are going to be horrible. But Jesus declares from the abomination of desolation from Daniel 9, when the Antichrist enters the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God, it's from that point forward, the back half that is the Great Tribulation. And we're not appointed to that, and we're going to go through another deep dive study when we get to Revelation chapter 4 of the rapture and how the church will be gone at this point. But the Tribulation, so he knows the distress this church is under. In John 16, 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And I love that because Jesus actually promised us in the, in the age and the time and the place we live right now, we will have tribulation. We will have persecution. We will have trials living for him because you're to walk through the world. You're not to be of the world. Okay, you're, you're not rooted in the world. Your home is a heavenly home. You are a sojourner right now, a pioneer. You're, you're passing through. And that's the namesake of our church here at New City. We did a four-part series on the founding of the church, looking to our heavenly home, the New Jerusalem, that is our eternal place for the bride, that new city that Jesus in John 14 went to prepare for us. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, what a promise. Right? That's, that's something really great to look forward to, but have cheer. He has overcome the world. Okay, but if you are living godly in Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Make no doubt about it. And it looks very different in different areas of the world, 
but there will come a time that what it looks like in the rest of the world will be here in the United States. I mean, make no doubt about it. It does not end well for the church, but praise God, we will be gone before it gets really bad. So the persecution of Smyrna, the Smyrna church, could have been relieved by offering a pinch of incense to Caesar. So when Rome ruled the world, they did not really care what God you worshipped, as long as you declared that Caesar was the most high God. So to do that, what you would have to do is you would go and they would give you this little pinch of incense and you would throw it in the fire and declare that Caesar is God, the most high God, and then you could go on and do anything you wanted. Okay, you could go worship Jesus, you could go worship uh, any false god, false idol you wanted, you just had to declare that Caesar was the most high. And for Christians, that gave a lot of problems, right? Because if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And so millions and millions of Christians willingly got burned at the stake or crucified or hung or martyred because they refused to throw a pinch of incense into the fire. And when you would do it, you would get this little card that would give you access in the Roman kingdom. So you could go in and buy food, you could get into the, the best shows in the Colosseum, you could do, you were an accepted citizen at that point. And it, and it was a model, a type of that future seven year period where if you don't take the mark, if you refuse to worship the Antichrist, then you have no access, right? You cannot buy nor sell. We'll get into that in Revelation 13, but it was a type, a foreshadowing of what's to come for the, for the people on earth, not the church, thankfully. Okay, the commendations for Smyrna. Continuing, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. So there's two words in the Greek for poverty, okay? There's penia, which is the state of having nothing above and beyond, but just enough. You know, so picture, picture kind of describing if you were living you had enough, but you were kind of living paycheck to paycheck. You know, you had enough, you were okay, but you were, you didn't have an abundance or a surplus. Okay, that's not the word here. This word in poverty is patoka. And what it literally means is, the word used here, it means a state of one who has absolutely nothing. In a complete state of beggary. Okay, so you, you don't, aren't living paycheck to paycheck. You have no paycheck. Okay, you are living where you can't even go buy groceries if you wanted to. It's the word of you are totally without anything. And look at Jesus, though, saying you are in that state of having absolutely nothing, but you are rich because he knows what you're doing and what you're about. And so it's a, it's a completely broken, dirt-poor state. That was the state of this church being persecuted in Smyrna. Okay, and then the very end, the last part of the commendations. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Okay, the synagogue of Satan. You know, the Jewish people had the entire Old Testament foreshadowing to the day that Jesus was to ride in on that donkey and declare himself king. And they refused him. The leadership refused him over and over and over throughout the New Testament and the Gospels when you pay attention to it. In fact, every single time Jesus would make a declaration that he was 
the living God, they would pick up stones to kill him. You know, he'd always slip away, and my time has not yet come. Okay, that it was the Jews, the persecution of the church started at the Jewish leadership because they wanted to refuse Jesus as king. The entire Old Testament presents Jesus in two different ways. And they'll think of him a lot as the Messiah of David and the Messiah of Yosef, or Joseph, meaning the ruling king and the suffering servant. But they were expecting a ruling king because for every one of the prophecies of Jesus showing up to die for us, there are at least eight of him coming to rule and reign for us. And so they were so fixated on he's going to rule the world through Israel, they totally missed, well, he's got to come and die first. And so they continually reject him. And in John 8, 44, you get this dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. And when you read that whole chapter in John 8, you kind of miss it, but they are calling him an illegitimate son. You know, they will ask him over and over, where is your father? You know, it's what they're saying to Jesus. And they're, they are calling him an illegitimate heir, an illegitimate son. And it gets heightened from there, but at the very end of, towards the end of the chapter in verse 44, this is Jesus speaking to the Jewish leadership. Ye are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. Remember, Jesus said, I am the truth. And so there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And, G and Satan from the very beginning, we'll see this later on in Revelation 12, he's an accuser of the brethren. He was a murderer from the beginning. He, how did he murder first? He murdered it first by deceiving Eve, and that was the first murder. It wasn't Cain and Abel. It was Satan and Eve that was the first murder. And so legalism and early persecution was established by the Jewish leadership. So legalism, remember they demand the Gentiles be circumcised in Acts 15. So they're trying to hold the church under the law. Okay, legalism. It's, it's a works-based faith. Not a completed work on the cross faith. Okay, Peter's rebuked by Paul in Galatians 2 and 3, and then Peter eventually agrees in 2 Peter 3 with that. That it's not about legalism anymore. It's about grace and faith and the completed work of Jesus on the cross. You have to add nothing to it, and you can't take away from it. It's completed. Okay, persecution. Uh, they left the persecution in Antioch in Acts 13. Iconium and Lystra in Acts 14, Thessalonica in Acts 17, and it goes on and on and on that this persecution was led by the Jewish leadership. And so that's what Jesus is saying, the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but yet are not. And he's talking about this leadership that rejected him and that declared crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Okay, there were some tares sown in the early church. Legalism is the denial of Christ's completed and finished work on the cross. Okay, you, have to, you cannot add anything to it, and you're not supposed to. It is finished. Okay, he was born under the law, according to Galatians. He fulfilled the law, according to Matthew. And he didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So he met every requirement of the law. For us to have fellowship with the Most High God. Gnosticism is the denial of Christ's humanity. 
And when you study it, every cult on earth and throughout the history of the earth has denied one thing in common, that Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh. Okay, and that's the commonality. They may declare that, oh, he was a real person and a great prophet and all these things, but they all deny one thing, that he was the Son of God in the flesh. Okay, Caesar worship. It was a denial of Jesus' lordship and his supernatural provision in your life. Okay, so all of these... All of these tares were sown early, early in the church. Okay, notice there's no concern for Smyrna. They have nothing bad. Jesus has nothing bad to say about them. They are enduring immense persecution. They're living for him and willingly dying at the stake. They're willingly going to be crucified because they are not going to deny the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And so the exhortation starts in verse 10. So fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So why ten days? You know, it's kind of an odd. Everything in the Bible is intentional. Every time period is intentional. Every... Every letter or place name, it's intentional. So why is Jesus using 10 days? Well, there's a couple of reasons. 10 days is how long Isaac's bride waited in Genesis 24. Remember Rebecca and her brother and her mother said, let the damsel abide with us a few days at the least 10. And after that, she shall go. It's how many times Job was reproached by Bildad in Job 19. These 10 times have you reproached me. Okay, so here was a righteous man being reproached from the outside for 10 days. It was how long Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, how many of you remember them from Daniel? You probably remember their Babylonian names, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's right. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah received sustenance from God for 10 days. Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, 10 days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Remember... Nebuchadnezzar demanded that they eat the meat of the king's table for a certain period of time, and then they would come in and, they, and he would choose who's the fairest of them or the most stately of them. And Daniel and his three best buddies refused for 10 days and merely challenged, hey, let us live on God's sustenance for 10 days, then we'll go in front of the king and we'll see who looks better. Remember, the king pointed them out right away. Wow, these guys look great. Let's pick them. Okay, so it's also interesting that there were 10 Roman dictators that intentionally persecuted the church. And they're not in sequential order. Okay, but you had Nero, Dimension, Tarjan, Marcus Aurelius, that's what the movie Gladiator was based off of, you remember that? Um, Servius, Maximus, uh, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian. Uh, Domitian's the one that exiled John. Who wrote the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit through John, that we're reading about. Nero, the first one, is the one who beheaded Paul and crucified Peter upside down. And you remember Peter did not want to be crucified like Jesus. He didn't feel worthy, so he was crucified upside down. But And they're not necessarily in sequential order, but there were ten Roman dictators that persecuted the church intentionally. And so... I think it's also another application that Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to be thrown into persecution for 10 time periods, 10 days, 10 sections of history. 
Okay, had a further out application and a very short local application as well. So famine and pestilence fell on Rome after the Parthian War, which devastated much of the Roman Empire. Okay, there was a flood in the Tiber, which were in many of the grain storehouses. You know, they were battle-weary from this war with the Parthian Empire to the east. And as a result, the Christians were a very, very convenient scapegoat to the Roman Empire. They thought, well, hey, these guys are worshiping this new god, this resurrected Christ. So we're going to blame everything on them and then persecute them for our failures as a society. Okay, so it, it was believed that during this time period, there were more than 5 million Christians who were willingly martyred for the name of Jesus. Okay, that's how persecuted this church was and oppressed and pushed underground. So they were walking the walk, to say the least. Okay, so Ephesus represented the apostolic church period. They forgot their first love, if you remember and that's what led into the persecuted church. So you have the apostolic church age and then the persecuted church age. And in Revelation 2.10, near the close of the letter, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So Jesus, the reward of the overcomer is a crown in this instance, which is the reward, the same reward that we have to look forward to as a faithful believer. And we've gone through inheritance and rewards some, but in the New Testament, there are five crowns listed. And I don't believe this is an all-inclusive list, but yet more of a sampling from the Lord on some activities you can do as a faithful servant to Jesus to have a crown waiting for you from when you stand before the God of the universe in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, and everything you did in your life is tried by fire and see gold, silver, precious stones, or burns up as wood, hay, stubble. And what's left is what you did in the spirit, and it's going to be one of these crowns and a lot of other rewards. So there's a crown of life. That's what's mentioned here. It's also mentioned in James 1.12. And it's a crown, and you receive that for enduring suffering. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8 is for loving his appearing. So if you're looking and longing for Jesus to bring us home in the rapture, there's a crown waiting for you. You have the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 4. That's for those who feed the flock. So if you have a loved one, a friend, somebody in your life you're pouring the word into, there's a crown for that. There's a reward for that. There's a crown imperishable in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. It's for pressing onward. So walking and enduring. Remember we talked a lot last time about you shall run and not faint. You shall walk and not grow weary. And walking the faith. There's a crown of rejoicing for winning souls in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And these rewards are all over the Bible. Uh, we're going to see more rewards as we go through Revelation. The, to eat of the tree of life. To inherit all things. To have rule over the nations. You know, Jesus is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He says over and over and over. And it's why it's so important all through the New Testament. This whole concept of running a race. You know, running and not growing faint, finishing strong. Finishing strong is the name of the game. David did not finish strong. Solomon did not finish strong. You have all these great men in the Bible who did not finish well. And, but yet, when you look at David and Solomon, for example, 
David is spoken of nothing but extremely high in the Bible, and yet he potentially murders someone and commits adultery. Solomon, on the other hand, is spoken of very poorly in the Bible. You remember Jesus said, the lilies and all their beauties, even Solomon's not arrayed as one of them. And yet he had more stuff than anyone else that ever lived on planet Earth. But he finished so poorly and was not after God's heart. And that's what God's looking for, to be after his heart. So in Smyrna, they spoke of the crown of Smyrna. So it was on their coins. And they worshipped the mother of Zeus in Greek mythology. They, they worshipped this false goddess on their coin. And they called it the crown of battlements or the crown of fortresses. Okay, so there is a deeply rooted spiritual warfare going on in Smyrna that they worship this false goddess. And I, I think it's also really cool how Jesus uses the reward as a real crown in this case to give his people the hope that they don't need to look to this false goddess crown. Look to a real crown that I have waiting for you, the crown of life. Now there's a hint to this ancient spiritual warfare given in Daniel. And it actually links it to the coming Antichrist. In Daniel eleven thirty eight, God says, But in his estate, his being the Antichrist, shall he honor the God of forces or fortresses, you know, the God of battlements. And it's a hint back to this ancient spiritual warfare they were doing that continued from Daniel's day all the way to Smyrna, and it will continue again with the Antichrist. Okay, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. So again, it's that, it's that counterfeit. Everything Satan does is a counterfeit. And remember that the final world ruler, you have the Antichrist, who we generically call him, the final world dictator, but you also have the false prophet. One of them is likely to be of a Jewish descent. As Jesus said, another will come in my name, and him you shall accept. Okay, that another is another of the same kind, another Jewish rabbi, for example. And it's kind of hinted at here in a God whom his fathers knew not, meaning the ancient Jewish people, his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a God that they didn't know. They worshiped the real God, but he's going to honor a God whom they knew not. It's just a hint of that kind of concept. So there's only two churches in these seven letters who have nothing bad said about them. It's Smyrna and Philadelphia. And it's interesting because if you remember at Ephesus last week, remember Jesus implored them, hold fast, repent, or else I will take your lampstand from you. You know, I will shut down your church. And we looked at how the church at Ephesus is totally gone today. It's not in existence. The whole city is in ruins. Well, here in Smyrna and Philadelphia, the only two cities of the seven who have nothing bad say about, said about them are also the only two cities still in existence today. And today, Smyrna is called Izmir, Izmir, Turkey. And here's some pictures of what it looks like. And what they did was they lined the streets, the upper left picture you can see, they would line the streets with these columns and these false idols and worship these false gods and put statues up. That were all over their streets through the city of Smyrna, or modern-day Izmir. It's obviously grown a lot. You can see from the other two pictures on the coast there. Uh, there's another picture in the bottom right of an ancient pagan worshiping site. Then behind it's a modern building with some 
some new architecture. So the, so the Smyrna lives on, you know, in Izmir today. There's a church there today, and I think that's pretty neat. Jesus had nothing bad to say about them, and they're still around. And so the closing phrase, and it's promised to be overcomer, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And so again, the promise to the overcomer is about death, the second death. And, and it's so interesting. So in Revelation 20, verse 6, you learn of the second death. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Okay, that's at the rapture is when we get our resurrected bodies. When Jesus comes back to earth in Revelation 19 is when the Old Testament saints get their resurrected bodies. And there are hints of that in Daniel, Job, kind of all through the Old Testament. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The millennium. So Revelation 20 is the only place in the Bible that describes the millennium as a thousand years. It says it over and over and over. But a thousand years, that's where that comes from. So the first death separates the soul and the spirit from the body. Okay, you are, you are created in God's image. And God... Is a triune mean. And so you are also a triune mean. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 as a hint. And this is all over the New Testament. But be very intentional when you're reading your Bible. That the spirit, soul, and body are all different things. So in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 it says. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body. Be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this, the soul is the self-consciousness or, or our personality, our emotions, our will. The spirit is the part of you that is the living God breathed into you. Okay, and then the body is obviously what we walk around in right now. And so the first death separates the soul and spirit from the body. The second death separates the soul from the spirit. And, and then you go on and you're cast out of the presence of the Lord forever. And Jude speaks a lot of this when he says over and over, those who are twice dead. That's what he's referring to, the twice dead. So if you're creating the image of God, as all of us are, you are a triune being. And it's a reason why there's a piece of you that is eternal. Because you are created in the image of God. You are eternal whether you like it or not. And so you will live forever. The, the question is, where will you live it? In the presence of our Lord Jesus, forever with him, ruling and reigning and taken care of, or forever separated because you didn't appropriate the blood of Jesus and the atoning sacrifice that he made when he tasted death for every man. And so the spirit is God-centered conscious. It's your spirit that breathed into you from the Lord himself. And God can't destroy himself, okay? He, he's indestructible, which is why you have no option. He has no option but to separate himself from you. Nobody goes to hell because of their sin. You only go to hell if you don't appropriate what Jesus did to remedy your sin. That's the bottom line. And those that choose not to, it's typically fleeing from accountability. 
They don't want to be held accountable for a fallen state, and they run away from it. But deep down inside, they know they are in need of a redeemer. And so the application to all of us and all churches is to endure persecution, withstand satanic opposition, and when we enter those turbulent times, we are to count it joy. Right? Remember James, my brother, and count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Okay, so when you're going through a turbulent time, you are to count it as joy. Because that means, again, you're living for God. It's not that he's against you. Most of the time, he's trying to refine something out of you. It's the sanctification process. First step, justification. Where you accept God, you accept his gift, you have a one-way ticket to heaven, you are stamped, you are justified. You are removed from the penalty okay, of death, the penalty of sin. Sanctification is removing the power of sin in your life. And that's what all of us are going through once you accept Jesus. You are trying to be sanctified, refining yourself, bathing in the word, letting the Holy Spirit work through you into to burn off anything that you may have that you're carrying around with you. And you have that baggage. Okay, and then sanctification. Then the final step in salvation is glorification, where you're removed from the very presence of sin and you are forever with the Lord. So justification, sanctification, glorification. There's three tenses of salvation all through the Bible, and that's the difference. Okay, so if you do not know Jesus, if you're watching online, if you're here in the room with us today, if you don't know Jesus, it's very simple. And if you want to escape the second death because he took that for you, it's very simple. Romans 10.9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There's nothing else to add to it. Not baptism, not living a holy life, not living righteously, not reading the Bible every day. That has nothing to do with salvation. That has everything to do with sanctification and living for the Most High God whose presence indwells you as the temple of God. And so, if you want to be justified and you haven't, it's simple. This is it. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. There's nothing else you can do. And once you do that and take that step, you will live for the first time in your life. You, it's like a light switch. You are turned on. And the Holy Spirit inside of you will start to work if you allow him. He will start to convict you of, hey, I don't want you to do that anymore. I don't want you to talk to your wife that way anymore. I don't want you to treat your kids that way anymore. I don't want you to take advantage of your job anymore. All of these things God will prune and work through you at that point. And the pruning process is not easy, right? But when you prune a tree, it's to better the health of the tree, right? So that tree can grow stronger. And that's what Jesus wants to do in your life. You can escape eternal separation from the one who made you in his image where you are forever to live with or without him. And he's sitting there waiting. And the one who breathed life into you and knew you before the foundation of the world wants to welcome you home forever. And when you're sensitive to the Bible and you're reading through it, the Lamb's Book of Life and Psalms and all over the Bible, Jesus will declare, if you reject me, I have no choice 
but to blot you out of the Lamb's book of life. See, everyone that was ever created, their name is written there. God foreknew them before the foundation of the world. He's got the book of life with your name in it. And if you choose to reject him, as he says in his word, I have to blot you out. Which means you have to be written there. Which means you are forever known by him. Which means he paid the price on Calvary for you in advance. Okay, he opened it up to everyone. And in Psalms it talks about how before your limbs were even knit in the womb, your name was written in that book. And if you want to keep your name there, all you have to do is do this. Romans 10, 9. Confess and accept, and you will forever be written blood in that book. And so if you want to reach out to us online, I think there's a link in the videos where you can send a message. If you need help on how to come to know Jesus, if you need help and support and prayer, and once you've known him, whatever the case is, there's a link online right now where you can send an email. And if you're here in person... And you need to know the Lord, come find one of us afterwards. Let's pray. And with that, thank you all for the church, the letter to Smyrna. I'll close us in prayer. And after church, uh, for all of you kids that are in this room, we're going to do a pizza party. We're going to have some drinks, some games, hang out here. Thank you for being quiet during the service. We love you guys. Uh, thank you for sitting and enduring that. And we'll, we'll pray real quick and get out of here. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your atoning sacrifice. God, we thank you that we have an option, that you made a way for us to come to you. And that you foreknew us before the foundation of the world. You wrote us in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you knew every one of us. And you don't miss a thing, Jesus. And Lord, if it means you leave the 99 to get after the 1, you do that. You meet us where we are. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this study. We pray that you'd be with all of us as we go throughout the rest of our weekend and the week ahead. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time together and for letting us gather together under your banner without the threat of persecution, without the threat of what Smyrna had to endure, without the threat of endangerment and imprisonment for carrying around your word. So, Lord, we thank you for that unique privilege that most of the body of Christ has not enjoyed throughout most of the last 2,000 years. And so we love you, Lord, and we give it all back to you. And we thank you for this opportunity and the privilege to serve and openly teach your word. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things, God. Amen.